So you've decided to give up that old behavior that's been killing you and all you care for and surrender to a power greater than yourself. That's the first step. Surrender is what opens the prison door. Now it's time to walk through that door and into a whole new way of life. Spirituality, self-care, service, social connection, and the simple daily disciplines that pave the way to lasting freedom. This is Positive Sobriety. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Uh, I'm Nate Larkin, here with my uh, flying partner, uh, good friend, <laughs> David Hampton. How you doing, man? <laughs> Swinging by a thread, baby. <laughs> yeah, okay, all right. Well, yeah, know, I'm, I'm good. I'm still dealing, frankly, David, with, I, I've got this strange uh, mix of, you know, exhilaration, and you know gratitude for a great weekend I had, and then some disappointment and resentment for the interview I missed. <laughs> you missed a good one. I'm just going to say that. Uh, you know, we we always have great guests, and everybody's yeah. everybody's special in their own way. But this was really intriguing and interesting, particularly because it's so it's just so fascinating the way that. Um, the way that these guys are incorporating something that's really news, that's obviously going to be a little controversial for some of our listeners. Uh, but man, you know, the, the opportunities that this could open up for helping yeah. people that are resistant to so much uh, yeah. medication and things. I mean, I, I'm, I'm glad you had a great weekend, but boy, this was really a great, uh, a great conversation. Well, I appreciate the fact that you really tried to uh, reschedule, re-engineer things so, so that I could somehow be a part of the conversation. I was committed and really glad I went. I went to first to Dallas, Texas to be interviewed for a film project and then up to Broken Bow, Oklahoma for uh, a weekend intensive with uh, uh, 22 Samson guys. And it was just yeah. fabulous. It was a great experience. We did a 48 Hours of Frankness. It was fabulous. Yeah. All yeah. the while knowing that I was missing this conversation that I have been looking ever since I read Michael Pollan's How to Change Your Mind. Uh -huh. And I began to entertain the possibility that there might actually be within the realm of nature, a, a plant medicine that could actually have a therapeutic benefit would really help to make, uh, you know, uh, monumental advances in the treatment of anxiety, depression and addiction. Yeah. The amazing. Yeah. And turns out you wind up with this guest who is, I mean, he's not only a doctor, all that kind of stuff, but he's actually, he's from Nashville. He mm -hmm. also has a connection to the group I'm in therapy with, a group that I've had a long standing relationship with Chip Dodd, Phil Herndon, Center right. of Professional Excellence, people I greatly respect. Right. Um, a guy with his own story of addiction and recovery who's teamed up with another, you know, scientific guy. Right. Uh, but, hey, man, you, you held your own in the conversation. 
And I, and I think, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I think, I think you, you were a little worried. You wanted me there to kind of prime the pump. Well, Did yeah, you? I, you know, cause I lean on you sometimes for the really good questions. And then but, but this was so fascinating, you know, that if you just trust your curiosity, uh, plus right, I, right. I mean, the, the work I do, I, I get a lot of material about this and some of it you go, yeah, wow, yeah. that sounds absolutely, uh, wonderful and intriguing. And then others, you wonder if it's just people, you know, eating mushrooms in the basement and hoping for the best, right. you know? Sure. Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and, uh, and these guys are the real deal. And, uh, and I'm excited because everything they're using in their work and their company is evidence-based research from really reputable places. Um, yeah, yeah. And I think what they're doing, as well as some other people are doing is in this, but I think it's going to be mainstream in the next five or 10 years. It's moving very quickly in that direction. And I think we have to credit Michael Pollan, actually, for a jump, really popularizing it and opening up the conversation. Yeah. yeah. They refer to that, uh, both the book and the Netflix series, uh, quite a bit yeah. in uh-huh. the interview, yeah. you know, and, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. and it's, and it's really an intriguing thing because, you know, it, like I said, when we've got folks that are so, you know, if you can't treat the depression and the anxiety, you can't really effectively treat the addiction. Right. And, right, right. um, and they understand both, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I, I was very hopeful. It left me with a, a very hopeful, uh, feeling that we could, uh, maybe get beyond the bureaucracy and the fear and the stigma that happened in the seventies, you know, right. with regard to some of these things that tabled them and, um, and made them completely off limits and, and actually get back to some real, you know, what are the benefits that we could be missing if we were to explore this? Yeah. All right. Well, enough, hopefully, to pique the interest of the listeners. We've got we've got a long conversation, but well worth the listen. Absolutely. So buckle your seatbelt. We'll be back in a moment on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Welcome back to the Positive Sobriety Podcast. And our guests today are um, really interesting guys that I've been wanting to get with for a while. And, uh, and uh, our, uh, our relationship has kind of evolved through texts and emails and things like that. But uh, Dr. Thomas Cabell is here. And uh, Thomas is a cardiologist in the greater Nashville area. And his cohort here is Chad Harmon. And Chad is the CEO of a company called Psychoceuticals. So you can imagine with that name where we're going today (laughs) with our conversation. But uh, guys, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for making the time to join us. I appreciate that. Absolutely. Thanks, David. Great to be here. Thanks for yeah. having us on, David. Pleasure. Absolutely. And and Chad, you're in Nashville, in the Nashville area right now. But where do you uh, call home? Yeah, I call home in uh, Houston, Texas. Okay, great. Um, well, we've got friends in Houston as well, so uh, that's that's great. great. Um, and you guys are um, partnering together in a in a venture that's really kind of new and exciting uh, in the area of treatment. And and before we get to that, though, we always like to hear uh, if folks have a bit of a recovery story of their own, because most of the time people don't wander into these kinds of 
professions and (laughs) studies and research and things like that, unless something maybe has hit home a little closely at times. So uh, anybody got a recovery story they want to share? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I I would say, David, most people don't come into recovery on a winning streak. We come in with our ass on fire. So uh, (laughs) that's that's very true. I could I could attest to that myself. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, I certainly do. And that's kind of what brought me to all this in the first place. so yeah, I'm married, thankfully today, and uh, we have four kids. Um, our my, our oldest is uh, 14. We have two boys, uh, 14 and 13. Two girls, 11 and nine, and uh, we live in Brentwood. And uh, I would say probably, um, well, it was just about nine years ago, this all kind of started with my youngest daughter being born. And uh, I'll I'll try to go through the pertinent parts pretty quickly, but. Basically, um, there was a there was a night where my wife went out with her friends. We were probably seven or eight weeks into our fourth child. We had four, five and under. Um, and I'm a working cardiologist, so my wife is amazing and was doing a ton of work with young children. Mm. And um, there was a movie that had come out. The Kendrick Brothers had come out with that um, that movie, Courageous, and. Uh, I just, I popped it in the DVD player, sat down with my youngest daughter who was asleep in my lap and proceeded to watch that movie and just literally cried my eyes out for probably two thirds of it. And, uh, wow. Just had such a, uh, a profound experience just around, um, issues related to fatherhood. And, um, I'm the oldest of four. My parents divorced when I was in the sixth grade. Um, it was, um, it was a blessing for me. I got out of a situation that um, probably wasn't so favorable for me at the time. But the fact that I have to say that is also something that was really painful. And and so I, uh, I was at work the following weekend. I sent out an email to several of the men in, in our um, church group that were part of our small group and some other friends of mine that I knew. And I just said, hey, I, I want to do this thing. I want to go through this book. I want to kind of do this whole, you know, dog and pony thing and go through the whole book and, and try to do that. And at the time, the church that I was a part of in Brentwood, we didn't really have a men's fraternity fellowship kind of thing. And so that kind of got started um, kind of inadvertently with me. And we ended up having about 12 or 13 guys. And over the course of time, we, we went through the resolution book and then we actually did the ceremony and um, we ended up going through several more books. And it was about two years later that one of the guys in the group, Sean, um, was friends with another guy, um, Jeff Schulte, who many people know in the recovery community. And, um, mm-hmm. and Sean brought this book, Voice of the Heart, to our group. And I remember sitting on a couch as guys were getting ready to start our, our Friday morning group, just flipping through it and just like having that thing just really ring my bell and being like, oh, my goodness, this is exactly what I've been looking for my whole life. Mm-hmm. And then probably that was probably in February um, in early March, um, Jeff came over to our men's group and did a process group with us and got more out of the guys in our group than we had gotten out of each other in over two and a half years. It was, I I just was dumbfounded. I was like, how can you do this? And I want what you have. Mm -hmm. And, um, so that led to me doing an intensive, um, with Chip and Phil Herndon and Schulte for a week at CPE in April of 2015. And uh, then my wife and I started seeing a therapist after that. We got hooked up uh, with that. And then (laughs) 
more and more stuff started to come out. Um, from that, I was diagnosed with um, PTSD from childhood and kind of got through this whole thing around understanding performance and adoration addiction and kind of how that plays out. And, um, and basically kind of in November of that year, um, more stuff kind of blew up and my wife and I had an in-house separation. And then, um, I'll never forget, um, you know, my therapist looking at me and saying something to the effect of, you can continue to do this on an outpatient basis, you know, for the next five or six years and risk your children having to deal with the same issues that you have, or you can go away to treatment and jump ahead five years. And I was like, well, you know, David, that's not even a choice. Like, fuck that. I'm not going to have them deal with this the way I've had to deal with it my whole life. And so, right. um, it was a hard decision at the time. There were only, really two cardiologists at the hospital I worked at. And so me going away to work with uh, Chip and Phil and those guys for basically 90 days um, was going to be a, was going to obviously stand out for people. And, uh, mm -hmm. but truth was, I really didn't care. I like, I needed to do it for me. I needed to do it for my marriage. I needed to do it for my family. And, um, you know, that was, that was a really hard process. Um, mm. Ultimately, um, because of my behaviors and things, um, my wife, which was very, very appropriate, um, when I got done with treatment after the 86 day, I had two extra days because I'm special. Um, you know, all, all addicts are special, David. All addicts that. are, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I'm very unique, right? Um, you know, she was like, you can't come home. And, um, wow. that was really, really hard. And mm -hmm. looking back on it now, there's no, I don't, I don't believe today I would have done the work that I ended up doing for the next nearly three years. Um, I was, my wife and my kids and I were separated for almost three years. I left the house in January, January 4th of 2016. And I came back in mid September of, uh, 2018. And, uh, you know, I lived in the recovery community. I had, um, kind of who I kind of call my recovery dad, um, who lives in Franklin. He and his wife are just pillars in the community and, um, in the recovery community and his, his service work is unparalleled. And I lived with them for four or five months and then finally got my own house and, had to do the whole basically, you know, every other weekend and some visitations on the weeknights and still trying to go to work and keep it together and work the program and do all those things that, you know, we have to kind of do an early recovery when, you know, a lot of things are coming up for people that they don't, they've never really dealt with a lot of emotional stuff, a lot of history, a lot of trauma. And for me, kind of what gets us back to where we are here on this podcast is I've always kind of been a biohacker. I was an engineer in college, then went to medical school. And as I came out of treatment and started to understand the mind body connection, I started to read and learn and listen and go through podcasts and lectures. And I started to understand in a way that I had never been taught the overwhelming connection between trauma that we experience emotionally, physically, and mentally and physical disease and the way that that stuff manifests. And so mm. 
it was almost like the conversion from Saul to Paul. Like I had my eyes open. And when I started going back into practice, I started seeing all these people and picking up on, you know, I would see a family history and see that both parents were alcoholic and, you know, a young woman's coming in with just terrible anxiety and depression and heart palpitations and chest pain and things like that. And of course we do all the normal workup of that as a cardiologist and everything come back, comes back completely normal. And so at that point in the past, I was like, Hey, your heart's fine. You know, go see your primary doctor. But instead I started to realize like, wait a minute, what if this is not anything physical at all? What if this is a ton of trauma that she has no idea how to process and it's just lingering in the body. And it's, and this is the body's way of saying, I need attention. How do I deal with this? How do I, how do I find healing for this? Mm -hmm. And so it was, it wasn't long after that I was referring my patients to other therapists, but obviously in Brentwood and Franklin, that's not cheap. And, and so my therapist at the time recommended that I talk to Amy Alexander, who's one of the co-founders and directors for the refuge center in Franklin. It's a huge nonprofit. We're, we're fond of saying we're like the St. Jude of mental health in middle Tennessee. Yeah. And so I partnered with Amy and started referring patients over there. And as she and I talked more and more, this was kind of mid 2018. So really even before I think I moved back home, um, she was like, Hey, we have this speaker series. We bring in people and we're going to do something on grief this year. And I would love for you to talk to people in a breakout session about taking care of yourself physically during periods of traumatic loss. And I was like, great, I'm there. And, um, and we had, so we had our, our keynote and we had four other speakers kind of financially and spiritually and all these things. And I did the physical part and, and Amy came up later and she's like, we had far and away the most demand for what you talked about. Everybody wants to learn more. Everybody wants to hear more. So in 2019, I was the keynote speaker. We had about 400 people for refuge and, and it was all about childhood trauma. It was about a scores, which mm-hmm. I mean, I'm a cardiologist. I'd never heard of an a score until I went through what I went through with my own personal story and started to learn how trauma affects children and young adults and then what it leads to down the road. And, the whole idea behind epigenetics and that each of us carries the trauma of our parents and grandparents and great grandparents. And, mm-hmm. you know, it sounds woo into a lot of my physician buddies. They kind of like give me the queer dog look, but there's a <laughs> tremendous amount of science, you know, behind uh-huh. that. And yeah, we do not talk about it. We don't mention it. And um, so in the process of understanding and learning about all that, that inevitably led me towards, you know, hearing, podcast and reading articles and coming across books that talked about kind of the history of psychedelic plant medicine throughout the world, you know, South America, Central America, Eurasia, um, the Mediterranean, the Greeks, the Romans, like how these things have been utilized across thousands of years, um, both as sacraments and as mystical experiences and how people were coming through these one time experiences just completely transformed. And mm-hmm. um, one thing that grabbed me early on was, you know, we learn in recovery that ego is about chips. One of chips patented sayings is ego is easing God out. Right. It's about, I was, mm-hmm. and that was, that was one of the reasons I was, I was, um, how do I say this? Um, the things that made me really good at being a doctor were the things that made me an F5 tornado in my personal relationships, like my ability to control my knowledge base, my intellect, all the things that are really that I'm blessed with are the things that made me worse to be in relationship with because I didn't know 
what I didn't know. And so um, realizing that ego and control is so much of the problem. When you hear people talk about their psychedelic experiences, one of the common themes that runs through it is people talk about an ego dissolving experience. And mm -hmm. so I was like, oh, wow, that's pretty cool. You know, how these things kind of can change the brain in ways that we really still don't fully understand, but people come out the other side and, and they are literally different people in the same way that I think our recovery process and going through the 12 steps and, you know, um, owning your mistakes and cleaning house and surrendering to the universe, the higher power, God, whomever it is for people changes us in a way. And so that's when I got more and more fascinated and, um, Several years ago, I had really good fortune to be involved in um, uh, kind of the early stage of a, a, a digital media company that's doing very well now. And some of the people who got invested in that company later on are kind of serial um, entrepreneurs. And they had come across uh, this company, Psychoceutical, that Chad's a part of. They reached out to me and said, "Hey, this is something we're considering." And I, I was like, "Great! What, what's it? What are that? What do they do? What are they about?" And they're like, "Well, it's about psychedelics." And I was like, "Oh my goodness! Like, mm -hmm. you're kidding me! Like, I've, I, I'd already had <laughs> three years of just trying to learn more and get experience, you know." And then I hadn't even talked about two years ago. I was in a near fatal accident. I was every summer I typically go out and do an adventure trip with a bunch of guys, and it's usually hard work. You know, we go with uh, Tin Man, Jeff Schulte and them, or Stephen mm -hmm. James, Leadership Lab. And so two years ago, I went on my first tour out there. We were driving Can-Ams and some guys were riding motorcycles. And, you know, as is always the statistic, literally two hours before the trip's over, I had this terrible accident, shattered. My, my left upper arm literally exploded and I uh, had uh, collapsed left lung and a flail chest and had to be helicoptered out and so on and so forth. And in that process, got exposed to ketamine in the field, um, which is not quite the, uh, what we refer to in the psychedelic space as the set and setting that you want to be doing <laughs> ketamine in. Right. Yeah. But um, it probably had a fair uh, effect in terms of limiting the amount of post-traumatic stress syndrome that I had from that accident. And, uh, yeah. and it was just a really crazy experience to kind of be lucid and conscious, but also having these amazing experiences kind of internally and um mm -hmm. and then, you know i got to be friends with who i've introduced you to dr caitlin kalstein who's yeah who's just a fantastic ketamine resource like she's amazing and yeah. uh um so it's just kind of all kind of come together and when i when i look back on my life i mean it, it's a miracle i came to nashville um in the way that you know i'm from jackson mississippi went to school there mississippi state old miss for med school and then um, ended up coming here for residency. And then when we were looking, my wife and I were looking for a place we were going to live after I finished my fellowship in Florida, you know, Nashville is a super competitive medical environment. And um, right. I was able to come back and work with what I think are the number one guys in Nashville. And, um, and so, and then it turns out years later, you know, Nashville's just an incredible recovery community. And, and the truth be told, the only person that I knew that I that had any, like I never even really knew recovery. The only recovery person I'm using that in air quotes that I knew was one of the men in my church group who was in AA and, and that's it. I mean, yeah. growing up, I never knew, I never knew anybody in recovery, never had any experience around any of that. And then to, you know, come in through it the way I did and then, 
kind of turn around and look back and go, holy cow. Um, I mean, for instance, I have a friend in Phoenix who was in treatment with me and he has to drive an hour for a meeting in Phoenix. You know, it's, it's really crazy here there. You can throw a stone and you'll hit a meeting of some sort. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's really, it's just an amazing place. And so we were really excited to be able to do this podcast for Nashville because we know how big the recovery and therapy world is here. And we yeah. really want to, you know, our mission is to, is number one, to educate and remove stigmas and two, just to get the word out that, you know, we, we hope in the next five years and Chad can speak more to this. Um, Chad and I were just in Baltimore for a strategic meeting for the company for, for two entire days. We were in a boardroom for two days. We were on international calls. We were in, in the amount of energy and enthusiasm around the world for where these plant medicines can go is I was just completely taken aback. I was like, Oh my goodness. I, I thought I had some idea of kind of where the state of the art was, so to speak, and where the space was. And it turns out yeah. it's, it's 20 times more than I thought in terms of the research that's going on, the amount of dollars coming into it, the number of people who are interested um, and, and people's just openness. I think, and I don't want to go too long, but I think COVID has kind of thrown everybody back into their story it's created a tremendous increase in anxiety and depression. I, I see it now just constantly in my practice. I have more and more and more young, healthy people coming in with significant complaints that really all tie back to anxiety and depression. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I think we are primed for, you know, a shift, a tectonic shift in how we address and treat and diagnose uh, mental health issues. So, yeah. Yeah. And the, and the anxiety and depression um, modalities that it seems most of the time people receive aren't working as well as we'd like to believe they are. Would that be fair to say? That's very fair to say. And uh, (laughs) I haven't had a chance to read it. There was a paper that just came out uh, published from a woman out of London who's done a tremendous amount of SSRI research and Chad may have had a chance to read it. I have not yet, but it was basically saying um, they do not work near as well as we think they do and or they don't work through a serotonin pathway like we thought they did kind of thing. Mm, so, yeah, yeah, uh, I think I both are of, probably true. I heard a psychiatrist say um, and Chad, I want to get to you here in a second. I, but I heard a psychiatrist say the other day that um, if you're resistant to more than two antidepressants out of the however many we have out there now, 30 some or something. Um, then you're probably resistant to most and um, probably 50% are of the people that take antidepressants aren't mm-hmm. actually responding to them the way that um, they hoped to be. Yeah, um, I think that's so, a safe number of 50%. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's a, it's kind of a disappointing thing because, you know, I have clients, I can't prescribe medicine. I have clients that need something um, and they go into their primary care, uh, doctors and they, and they demonstrate all of the symptoms for classic depression, anxiety disorders, and, and they're given medications and it takes them four weeks to figure out it doesn't work. And then it takes right. another four weeks to do something else. And by the time they get into two or three months of, uh, playing, you know, roulette with medicine, they're right. extremely discouraged and usually right. relapsed and, right. um, so it's a, you know, anyway, it's a big, it's a big deal. So, um, well, so yes, Chad, and, like, and to your point, like the problem is allopathic doctors are like, here's a pill, this is going to fix it. And, and as you know, like there's so much more oh, underneath yeah. the surface that has to be addressed, but we don't work in a system that wants to acknowledge or deal with it. And so yeah. 
no, I'm not against medication, but I think we vastly over imbued medication with this. It's going to fix everything. And we're really quick in the psychedelic space to say that these things are not panaceas. They seem to be able to increase and hold space for people to be able to go and do the work they need to do without having to go through, in the case of heroin or alcohol, a lot of the concomitant withdrawal symptoms and the DTs and things like that. And mm-hmm. so there's there's a lot of potential advantages there, but it, it's it's not, pardon the expression, it's not a magic pill. You know? Yeah, yeah. Well, well, Chad, so tell me your background a little bit and how you got into this space. I know that, you know, you guys connected here, but how did how did this how did you get brought into this this space? Sure, David. And what I like to do is kind of give a little backstory. And um, certainly I, I don't have a personal history with um, uh, sobriety, but I think my backstory and certainly the convergence of where I'm at and certainly the passion I have. Uh, in the space, so it will all make sense. But you know, I, I grew up in Southern California with the very loving, uh, um, you know, parents, and um, you know, my dad was in the Vietnam uh, War, so he had a lot of uh, PTSD and a lot of social anxiety disorder growing up, and so he had you know various mental health disorders that he was dealing with personally. Not knowing it as a kid, uh, but now looking back, you know, certainly seeing all those signs and. Uh, again, very loving father, uh, very strict, very stern, but, um, you know, it was always, always there for, uh, for us. Uh, and my mom, when I was uh, just before I hit one and um, gosh, my brother was, is, was in utero at that time, uh, lost her, her father. He was 47 years old. Uh, consequently, uh, that, that's, uh, well, I'll be, I'll be 47 in a few months. So, um, but yeah, lost him at an early age. And that, uh, you know, really uh, put her down a path of seeking, you know, traditional um, SSRI treatment. Uh, Prozac was what they prescribed. And uh, so growing up, uh, you know, not knowing it, I was being exposed to um, various mental health disorders. And as a kid, I, I had always said, I want to be a doctor. And then I, as I got older, I'm like, wow, that, that it takes a long time. Uh, that's a lot of schooling. And <laughs> it's a big uh, commitment, right? <laughs> it, it is. And, and I, and I was, um, very much some, somewhat of an ADD kid. I was, I was always, um, very ambitious. And I thought, uh, school, uh, I can learn more outside by doing and replicating some of the successes from others than actually going to school. So that's, that was always my train of thought. Um, so, but as I got a little older, uh, I started to uh, see some changes physiologically with myself, uh, experiencing some early on uh, panic attacks, very severe to the point where um, if the sun would go down, I would have major panic disorders. And wow. I, didn't, I didn't know what that was. Well, my dad was going through, um, you know, a loss of a job. Uh, he was on strike. Uh, he was a foreman for a big uh, concrete cement company. And, uh, you know, parents going through obvious stress uh, through that. My, uh, my brothers were starting to dabble into methamphetamine at the time, which we, we were not aware of. Um, and my, my brother, my, my little brother, I remember this distinctly. Uh, see, I was uh, in a senior in high school and he was, he was in eighth grade, um, really seeing my parents kind of struggle, but we're, we're, I'm, you know, five years older than him. So, uh, mind you, I don't know exactly what's going on. Cause I was, I was very good in school. I was in athletics. So 
I was not at home all the time because I, I worked and uh, did athletics and, and, and school. So, uh, but uh, I'm just remembering very vividly my mom coming home and saying, we got to take your brother to a mental hospital. Uh, he's not doing well. And that to me kind of shook me up because I'm like, well, I mean, what's going on? You know, I was, uh, we just didn't talk about it as a family. Mm-hmm. And so right. seeing him go into the institution and him kicking and screaming and, and uh, you know, I'm seeing my little brother and, it, you know, still emotional to this day to, to even, uh, you know, recollect back to that period. And yeah. so, I'm like, you know, it, for me, it was this, why does he have to go there? Like, why can't we get on uh, medication or, you know, just just mm-hmm. go through the normal process? And so that really kickstarted this, the next several years of uh, really him uh, going in and out of uh, uh, jail as a young child, as you know, young teenager, uh, my brother, uh, middle brother, kind of walking through the same uh, pathway and seeing both of them go to prison uh, several times. Uh, and, you know, for me, it, it was one of those areas where I'm, I'm like, I, I was always a perfectionist in the family and I always wanted to strive and, uh, you know, help my parents and to see them both struggle in that way it was it was very difficult. And so when we talk about sobriety, it's it you know, we talk about those not only that are going through it, but also those who are on the periphery who are really right. close to it. You know, and going through that experience, we go through it just as much as the individuals. Yeah, and that yeah. impact. And so for yeah. for me, uh, it was, and it just kept coming back to this 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 statement, um, even early on as a child, uh, wanting to help and heal people uh, was always really in the back of my mind, and and I always had this passion to always help people, no matter who they are or you know what they did. I just always had a soft heart because of, you know, what my brothers went through and certainly the family, um, the, the, the family uh, issues there that were prevalent. So uh, kind of fast forward, I was uh, I spent 20 years with Anthem Blue Cross Blue Shield, which is a big, large insurance carrier and um, really, you know, ran a, a, a 14 states and really understood the data and, and what we were doing to drive healthcare forward. And David, what, what was really, um, really profound going through and uh, all those years, and we always talked about transforming healthcare and, and moving the needle. And what I was seeing, David, was we weren't doing that. We were in many respects going backwards. Um, even from the cancer front, right? We've got all these organizations that are fighting cancers. We've spent billions and billions and billions of donations and dollars, and I'm I'm not seeing any movements there. And then I'm looking at mental health, and I had the privilege of being on a, a, a case. Um, we did an internal investigation in regards to Michael Jackson and all the uh, uh, basically uh, doctor shopping he did and all the prescriptions he was under. Uh, David, it, it was amazing to see uh, the amount of drugs that he was on uh, over the various uh, days, weeks, and months—it uh, was—it was—I uh, I couldn't believe somebody could take that many drugs and and function in society. So yeah, uh, so we know Let what happened. Perform. Yeah, right. So you know, I got to this place, David, in my life where uh, you know, it really became a moment where I said, "Do I want to really spend?" 
the next 30 years and um, you know, continue to move up the corporate ladder? Or is there more of a divine purpose? Is there a mission and passion that I'm feeling called to? And, and that really was uh, looking outside. And I had, again, I grew up in Southern California. We moved to my wife and I, uh, we moved to Colorado. And right around this time, uh, marijuana became uh, legalized. And so uh, my dad in 2012 was diagnosed with prostate cancer. And, um, and thank God, I, I, I kept pressing him to retire and move out with us. Uh, because I knew some of the struggles he was going through, uh, but because of uh, his work schedule, uh, the man would drive, you know, two hours one way to the Bay Area in, in Northern California and spend all of his waking hours working and, and, and driving to work. I mean, he would spend six and seven days a week, even, you know, in his 60s. So I uh, got him out here. I got him in with a uh, with a really great doctor and found out he had prostate cancer. So thank God we got him out and we got him treatment. But uh, we looked at alternative means. We looked at cannabis and and we sought some relief and he was very opposed to it at first, but then he came around to it and, and, and saw immediate relief. And that really sparked an interest to me. And so uh, I was introduced to some, some very large um, multi-state operators at the time uh, in, in Colorado, very successful. And I really started to do some consulting and really putting some uh, corporate governance guidance and more um, in executive level planning uh, to these organizations and certainly became enamored with the field because of the therapeutic promises that it held in, in various uh, disease states, you know, not only, you know, cancers, um, you know, but uh, various neurological disorders that people were, were under. So, uh, you know, fast forward the last two to three years, uh, we were really looking at psychedelics um, really closely because we were seeing some of the early stage results from psilocybin, mm -hmm. from MDMA, from uh, MAPS and, and, and Compass Pathways. And uh, my partners, uh, Dave Mahalik, uh, who's uh, CEO of Coeptis Pharmaceuticals, and I really started to, to look at the landscape. And uh, what we did is we, we looked at a couple of, of technologies and, and really based the company off of that and then um, you know, brought in an amazing world-class team and, and started that you know, really three years ago. So uh, I'll kind of pause there. I know that was uh, quite a bit there to, to digest and, and wanna see what questions you have. Every person engaged in the fight against alcohol addiction has their own reason for being involved. Maybe it's a husband or wife, a daughter or son, a mom or a dad, a best friend, a colleague, a job, a hobby, or just yourself. Whatever your reason for recovery, we're all in this together. On the Positive Sobriety Podcast, we understand that the opposite of addiction is connection. And our mission includes building a strong community and working together to break the stigma of alcohol addiction. That's why we've partnered with Soberlink to expand and strengthen our community even further. Soberlink is a remote alcohol monitoring technology created to help provide accountability for people in recovery. 
The system includes a high-tech breathalyzer device with facial recognition that allows you to share your sobriety in real time with loved ones who can offer support in the event of a slip or a relapse. Soberlink has helped hundreds of thousands of people document proof of sobriety in real time to help rebuild trust and foster peace of mind. Soberlink is currently building a strong community of people in recovery. Get inspired and inspire others today by joining the community at soberlink.com PSP. That PSP, of course, stands for Positive Sobriety Podcast. The link again is soberlink.com PSP. Yeah. Well, I mean, that I love your stories, how they have um, kind of dovetailed to this to this point, you know, and what potentially can can happen from this. Um, what what do you think we can anticipate in the next five years as becoming a more standard um, uh, option for something like uh, psychedelics? Because there are lots of uh, things coming out now that um, are are pretty are pretty hard to refute. I mean, there you got to really if uh, if you're going to be objective, you got to really look at it and go, man, you know, there's some there's some pretty significant experiences people are having in the areas of depression and anxiety and trauma and all these things that uh, play into addiction and recovery. And um, what do you think the obstacles? are going to be, or what are they that you're already uh, experiencing from the either mainstream medical community, conservative politics? I mean, gosh, what, not to be, you know, not to get jumped down that rabbit hole right <laughs> off the bat, but, <laughs> but let's face yeah. it. I mean, you know, we're kind of in yeah. a, in an environment right now where things uh, uh, could potentially, you know, be uh, squashed a little bit. And, you know, I was, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day and, and, you know, we were just, kind of going over a book that we had both uh, listened to and um, you know, the war on drugs kind of thing sort of pressed pause on a lot of potentially good. It sounds like anyway, research that could have been going on because people had an agenda and, you know, they used, you know, people dancing naked at Woodstock to make their point or something. And so, um, so how do you push back against all that? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it goes back to Thomas's earlier uh, statement regarding a new study that just came out out of London. And what it essentially uh, told us, David, was that um, it's not a chemical imbalance problem that we've all heard and, and have um, and, and really ingrained into us that uh, there, there's something neurologically, chemically um, going on in, in, in the brain itself. And, and that's been refuted with the, the latest news. And, and, and what we're now seeing and, and studies are starting to come out and even some of the mainstream uh, news are really starting to question um, our existing treatment model from a mental health perspective. Uh, you know, we've been given uh, this, this rhetoric that, again, it's a chemical imbalance problem uh, that, uh, you know, we can, we can fix these, you know, with, with these mainstream SSRIs. And, and that's, it couldn't be farther from the truth. Uh, again, you're seeing, you know, 30% of the population that do see some relief. But I would even argue uh, 
that in many instances, uh, people will, will, will try the SSRI, SSRIs, uh, but quite frankly, we'll just give up. And, and, and Dr. Thomas can uh, certainly um, attest to, to that and give some additional color. But you know, from, from the overall landscape, uh, David, what we're seeing is a, is a push now uh, from uh, more from the state's rights. And we're, we're seeing more advocates coming to the forefront because of the early clinical results that we have seen. And even some of the old results that we've seen from the 60s and 70s, to your point, that showed great promise. Um, we've got a new movie out by Michael Pollan. Um, people haven't seen that on Netflix, uh, How to Change Your Mind. Uh, mm-hmm. Amazing, amazing um, uh, documentary, uh, really going through, you know, the 60s and 70s and, and, and you know, previous to that. So uh, we, we saw those results. That, and again, uh, and, and this is what you know, I struggled with uh, early on, even going through my Anthem Blue Cross career is that, you know, we, we've, and, and I think this is where psychedelics really comes into play. Again, going back to it's not a chemical problem. It really goes back to those hurts, those wounds, those untreated uh, met needs as as child. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think a lot of that really is, is there's no handbook on, on how uh, you really stop and address uh, what could be perceived as, you know, somebody yelling you, you know, in many cases, uh, when we're, when we're speaking about stress, anxiety, depression, uh, people will say, you know, my, my parent yelled at me for this, or they did something, you know, years and years ago. Now to most people, it's probably not big and probably brush it off. But in some cases, those are, those are wounds that have been uh, deeply rooted for many, many years. And so we don't have these mechanisms where, whereas uh, adults and certainly children, where we stop and recognize when the, when those events are occurring and addressing that that need at that point in time. So that way, your mind, uh, you know, really doesn't revert back to what we consider a default mode network. We start to build these these padding patterns neurologically that that uh, basically store those memories. And if we don't release those memories, then uh, that's going to be carried around for the rest of our lives. And so what, what psychedelic uh, medicines have been effectively able to do is allow you to go back in a, and again, in the right set and setting with the right dosage, allow you with the therapist to go through and uncover those, those deep uh, rooted wounds, if you will, uncover them in a very loving and safe manner. And again, to Dr. Thomas's point, it is uh, having the means and methods to uncover them and work through them uh, versus taking these SSRIs with it's just a Band-Aid and and it's a a horrible Band-Aid from my perspective. So uh, again, we've seen certainly with uh, newer news that's coming out now with the Biden administration saying in the next two years, we're gonna start to change the legislation. So we've got states that are now starting to legalize them. We have cities, and now we have the federal government saying, we've seen enough. We know that uh, certainly even prior to, David, you can make an argument that there was a big, one of the biggest mental health crises or, or one of the biggest epidemics we had was mental health globally. But when you beat the drum long enough without a solution, it falls on deaf ears. So we globally didn't have any solutions. So if you don't have any solutions, you can't beat that drum. We always knew that, a, a big issue, but we had no way and no means to address it. 
So uh, now we're at the place where now we, we've got clear cut evidence that says we do have a solution in place. Um, it, these, these compounds are, are, are not, um, they, they shouldn't be demonized based on the propaganda that we've been fed all these years. So I'll, I'll pause there because I know Thomas has got some great insight there. Um, <laughs> sure, your take on that as well. Yeah, Thomas, what do you? Uh... Um, I mean, Chad did a fantastic job. I think you know, case in point, ketamine is just absolutely talk about a magic pill for suicidal ideation. It's unbelievable. You know, J and J came out with an intranasal ketamine called Stratava. I actually have a, a patient that I saw uh, that's on it. And I, I asked that patient, I was like, how's that been for you? And they said, I wouldn't be sitting in front of you. Um, you know, this is, this is somebody who um, father was never in the picture. Mother was a chronic um, drug abuser. He was in the foster care system. Like, you know, just the stuff that, that David, you and I are familiar with that we see in the recovery space and we hear about all the time. And, so he's really struggled in the past with kind of these waves of suicide ideation. And he, he's like literally within three or four hours of using it, it all melts away. Mm-hmm. And as you know, for, especially for young teenagers and young adults, like SSRIs are horrible for that, right? We see mm-hmm. and people are going to be listening and say, you know, you're, you're not a psychiatrist. I'm not. I've read a lot on this. That's not necessarily my wheelhouse, but I do know a lot about how these things work. And so there is that time period for four to six weeks where you know, in young people, this can get worse. And so mm-hmm. I think ketamine is a great example for that. Um, and um, I think we have to be very intentional about how these things are used. Um, that's something that Chad and I talk about and we talk about as a company, like, you know, with ketamine, there's kind of this biomedical model where in one sense, people get an IV, they go to a cold sterile room and they get the IV going and they close the door and leave them alone. And I think, you know, if you talk to Dr. Kalstein, she would be like, oh, yeah, that's probably not the way we necessarily want to do it. Yeah. But that incurs more cost. Right. So if we talk about pre, peri and post integration with therapy around using ketamine, then it starts. To, the cost is all in the therapy part. Right. If you got one or two therapists that are involved. And so one of the things that we talk about with psychoceutical is how could we cut down on time? Are there ways that we can alter compounds to get more efficacy with less time. And those are all empirical questions that hopefully someday we can answer. And to your initial question, like where this is all headed, I made a, I made a comment to one of the other um, psychoceutical team, you know, just on Monday or Tuesday, when we were kind of looking at the, the universal development around psychedelics right now across multiple companies and things like that. And I was like, my goodness, we're going to turn the world upside down in about five to 10 years. Like the number mm-hmm. of trials and compounds and, and kind of, you know, you take something like psilocybin and it's active ingredient psilocin. And then you look at all the different potential metabolic um, or me- metabolic active compounds that you could use in that case. And different companies will take different ones and they have, you know, like, um, there's one called Ibogaine that's really, really impressive with like heroin and alcohol addiction. It's, it's really unbelievable. Um, just as an aside, there was a small trial, you know, down in Australia and I think they had 12 people. If I remember, it's been a little bit since I read it, but I think after one 12 hour treatment, I think 
five or six of the 12 never used heroin again for a year with no other intervention. Wow. Like, and they, and to get in that trial, they had to be using daily for at least four years. Man. I mean that, okay. Let's say it works. Let's say it works a third that well, that's still amazing compared to anything we have right now. And so I think that's, what's got a lot of people excited. Um, And to the point about, kind of the legislation. Um, Chad's absolutely right. I've been blown away. I get most of my education through windshield time. I have four kids and they almost all play travel sports. And so we're super busy. (laughs) And so I get, you know, taking to and from and driving to and from work. I'm doing audible books and podcasts. And I've been listening to Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind. And he he does an amazing job going through the early history of psychedelics in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. I had no idea. There were, I think there were over 40,000 people involved in trials before 1960. There were over 1,000 different trials. LSD had incredible potential with alcoholism. I mean, mm-hmm. really like incredible. And, and he even makes a statement, and I don't remember the gentleman's name, but one of the top kind of um, alcohol addiction specialists in the world had no idea of LSD research in the past. He was completely oblivious to it. And he started going back and looking. He was like, why have nobody, why have we not talked about this? Like, why is this secret? Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's just been amazing because it kind of, to Chad's point in the sixties, there was this, there was this big breakup of a bunch of uh, drug users who were experimenting with Ibogaine to try to get over their heroin addiction because when the police came in and kind of gathered everything up, Ibogaine got lumped into heroin and it was a schedule one drug. And it's probably the most non-abusive drug in the world. Like anybody that's mm-hmm. done it will tell you, I'm never touching that stuff again. <laughs> like it's, mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. is intense. Mm-hmm. Any Ibogaine trip that most people go on is like literally all of their trauma plays back in front of their, in their mind. And so wow. it's, it's really, really intense. And then, you know, we're still working to understand how that even happens. Um, Mm -hmm. But people come through that. There's a whole nonprofit for military veterans that, that sends veterans down into Mexico to a clinic that does Ibogaine to basically treat their PTSS. I I call it PTSS. I think disorders, when I talk to people about it, I say, listen, if, if you're, if your foot's taken off by a lion in the jungle, then, then damn it, you're going to be hypervigilant around lions. Like that makes mm-hmm. all the biological sense in the world. So mm-hmm. it's just the brain and nervous system doing what they're supposed to do to try to keep you safe. So, yeah, but these guys go down there and they really have just miraculous stories. Um, you know, they, they get themselves back. It's, it's almost like, and I hesitate to say this, but it's almost like a control alt delete for the mind. And you can yeah. just kind of just reboot and start over. There's yeah. some, problems with that kind of paradigm, but that's kind of what happens for them. And they kind of revert back to what they were like before the traumas ever happened. Kind mm-hmm. of thing. It's, Is it it's really because, remarkable. yeah. And, and I know we can't untraumatize ourselves, right. but is it fair to say it's it's sort of an integrating process and an ability to make peace with um yeah, I think it, I think I think about it. And again, I, you know, my only experience right now is ketamine. I hope that changes in the next six months. But I would say it's kind of like EMDR on super steroids. Right. I mean, people go yeah. through. I did a ton of EMDR and you kind of go from the state of the nervous system being in hypervigilant mode to kind of the limbic resonance settling down and things moving out of the, the limbic system to the prefrontal cortex. And you just don't have that kind of filter Mm -hmm. anymore. And Mm -hmm. at least from what I'm reading and hearing from other people, 
Um, one of our psychoceutical um, team members just got back five or six days ago before our meeting in Baltimore and did the Ibogaine experience. And, and they said it was remarkable and completely wow. like she's had some, some other experience. They've had some other experience with uh, different psychedelics. And, and they said, you know, this one was just, just really life-changing for them. Man. So, um, well, uh, Chad, you coming from the insurance background, um, a logistical question might be how likely is it that insurance is going to cover these kind of therapies? Yeah, great question, David. And so, you know, by going through this process uh, with the FDA and seeing the results we're, we're seeing, uh, it's going to be an approved um, insurance um, uh, reimbursement. So, you know, once you get through the FDA process, that really gives, you know, us the basically the gold seal and the approval to move forward. And, and uh, again, when we can consider, you know, putting on my insurance hat, right? If I can go back and look at all the, the claims, again, we're talking, David, I mean, hundreds of billions of dollars over decades, right, of SSRIs. If we can go back and rewind that and give somebody to, um, you know, an ibogaine or psilocybin or MDMA treatment, ketamine, and have one, two, or maybe even 10 treatments versus years upon years of mm -hmm. trial and error with these, these SSRIs, and, and let alone, uh, again, the suicidal ideation that comes with many of these, uh, right. how much can we save uh, you know, insurance companies, right? So it mm -hmm. goes back mm -hmm. to, uh, can we save uh, the, can we save the company money, right? That's, you, mm -hmm. put a, you put your hat on there. So yeah, uh, it, it, it will be something that will be reimbursable because again, they want to get people off of, um, you know, again, it, it's very toxic. We think about all the SSRIs, very toxic on the liver. Um, yeah. You know, it creates, you know, multitude of issues, um, you know. For and, the and a point to make is it's, it's similar in a way to kind of thinking classically around like a, even like a vaccine, you get one exposure, maybe two, maybe three to psilocybin MDMA. And it's, you're not taking something daily for years. It's not a, it's not yeah. something that you're having to constantly go back to and go back to and back to. These really are kind of almost doorways that people pass through in order to move to a different level of consciousness, healing, uh, however you want to say it, that that seems to be what we keep seeing. The signal we keep seeing in the data um, is is a lot more one, two, three times use um, for a lot of the trauma and a lot of the things we're talking about here. And you know, not to mention, kind of the flip side of that is um, the microdosing side of things, right? So there's mm -hmm. there's a lot of um, a lot to be made around this idea. I mean, people use caffeine and alcohol on such a regular basis. You know, Pollen's got another book. This is your mind on plants. Um, <laughs> but, but if you think about how these compounds are neurogenic and they improve plasticity and the ability of the brain to connect to itself, mm -hmm. there's a tremendous amount of evidence that in very tiny, tiny doses, these things improve focus. They improve creativity. They improve empathy. Like, mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, so there's kind of two different models to talk about with how we could potentially use the science. Well, do you, speaking of, oh, go ahead, Chad. Go yeah, ahead. just to tag on to that too, uh, David, is, you know, we, we're still obviously in the early stages. And we think from an overall neurological standpoint, we consider that there's no real known treatments for 
uh, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, these other neurodegenerative disease states. And again, mm -hmm. uh, these what these psychedelic compounds do extremely well. And we can even look at ketamine as a prime example where it's based on an fMRI, you're, you're lighting up you know, both lobes, I mean, both hemispheres, and you're, you're, you're essentially, it's like the limitless drug, right? But mm -hmm. you're creating new uh, dendrites or new neural connections, uh, neuroplasticity. So what happens is, uh, David, if somebody takes one treatment of ketamine, uh, up to seven days afterward, you're still creating new neural connections. And that's what a lot of what psychedelic um, you know, drugs have the propensity to do is, is create those new neural connections that have been shut off either through trauma or just, again, it goes back to the default mode network where, again, we always talk about the 90-10 rule. We only are using 10% of our brain, but, you know, 90% is just left dormant. Well, that's because, you know, we don't have new, really, as we get older, we don't have new experiences. We've been ingrained. We're doing the same thing day in and day out. So we're not we're not reinvigorating the brain. We're not training it on a constant basis. We're not stressing it. And so what psychedelics does extremely well is create those new ne neural con uh, connections. And, and I'll take psilocybin as a case. If you've ever taken it, even at a microdose level, things seem to enhance themselves much more vibrantly. So all your senses are heightened. When you go out and you're seeing the same tree for the same time, Actually, it's it it seems like it's breathing that there's life to it. There's this vigor, and you're really in tune. Um, and it goes back to a certain frequency that these plants emit, and we're really connected. So, uh, you know, from from that standpoint, these 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 uh, uh, these compounds are just you know very very uh, profound uh, to say yeah. the least. I did want to well, tag him. Yeah. And, and so, you know, we were speaking of money a minute ago, um, which in all this kind of work and, you know, uh, Thomas, you're, you're grinning, but um, do you anticipate pushback from the pharmaceutical companies who, if this thing really is something that people begin to realize the benefits of, is that, is that something they're going to push back against because it's going to cut into all that, um, potentially uh, changed revenue from antidepressants? Yeah, great question, David. So what, what I liken this to, and, and really, it's, it's not the way I would have rolled out uh, certainly cannabis, but it really allowed us to go back and really assess what cannabis really did, right? You go back to the propaganda, uh, David, right? It's the, the, the devil's lettuce, you know, people are going to get high, they're going to start killing people, they're going to do all this stuff. But what did we see? In Denver, for example, when we rolled out, and we took a, a two year study, uh, postmortem of implementation. And what we saw, David, is not only a reduction in the overall um, number of cases coming in for alcohol related accidents and deaths. But we also saw um, a, a reduction in overall emergency room visits as a result of alcoholism, um, violence as it relates to you know alcohol-related incidents. Um, mm -hmm. Matter of fact, uh, we saw a complete reversal um, in, in many instances in in individuals that uh, were able to remove themselves from alcohol and go to to cannabis in a very safe and effective manner. So what that taught us was is that we hit a precipice in in the country that says we've been fed this propaganda for so long 
And now we're finding out this was a very therapeutic plant compound that was that was hidden from us. And 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 people really started to see that for what it was and says, you know what, maybe I shouldn't have listened to the government. Maybe I should do my own research or maybe, you know, looking at the FDA and saying, oh, you know what, you guys missed the boat on this. And oh, wait a minute, you guys went ahead and filed a patent back, you know, years, years ago uh, mm-hmm. regarding cannabis because of the therapeutic benefits. So, you know, where we're at today is is now the cat's out the bag. We've hit the precipice. There's so many companies involved uh, globally now, and uh, there's so many results showing the safe and effective means. Again, here's the here's you know it's always a blessing and curse with with social media and what you can and cannot see on there. So, um, but we're starting to see people now starting to engage. In, in psychedelics in a very meaningful way and have profound results and people are sharing it. And yeah. you, you, it's, it's a point of note, we've reached the point of no return because of the results, because of people's own experiences. So, yeah, I think, you know, kind of to quote Malcolm Gladwell, like we've hit this tipping point and I think enough people are going to start to demand, you know, what we're trying to bring to the table that uh, I think insurance is going to have to play or something's going to have to give. And to that point, like what we're trying to do with psychoceutical specifically is we're trying to set it up so that doctors like me who want to be able to prescribe something and get it at a pharmacy and so on and so forth, we can do that. Like most physicians are not going to say, hey, you know, take five grams of mushrooms, grind it up, put it in a powder and drink the tea. They're like, I'm not really comfortable with that. (laughs) So so what we're trying to do and, and kind of what we have around these patented delivery devices um, is a way to facilitate that we can control, um, down to, you know, a nanoparticle like, and do multiple drugs at a time. If we ever, if we decide that MDMA plus, you know, a a tiny, tiny micro dose of LSD together works gangbusters, then we can set that up in a way that we deliver that kind of in a series or in parallel with our technology, which is, which is, you know, unheard of. Mm-hmm. So that's where we hope to be able to really kind of leverage these active compounds and use them in ways that in nature you necessarily can't get. But once we can kind of do some more empiric research, we may find that certain combinations work really well. And there's literally hundreds and hundreds of trials going on in this stuff right now. Um, and so I think, like I said earlier, the next five to 10 years are just going to be amazing in terms of where this is headed. I think. There's just, it's a perfect storm. And I I think if you look back through the last 5,000 years of human history, these compounds tend to kind of cyclically turn up. And it's fascinating. We were talking about this, and this is maybe interesting for the listeners, but if you look up Paul Stamets, S-T-A-M-E-M-E-T-S, and Joe Rogan, he, Stamets is a mycologist. He's got multiple patents. He's worked with DARPA and the DOD. I mean, the guy's just a genius in mycology. And he talks about this experiment. It's just, it blew my mind, right? So what are these things? They're fungus, right? Most of us are like, ooh, fungus, right? But there's this incredible innate intelligence to these things that we as human don't appreciate. The Japanese did an experiment with slime mold where they inoculated a small area on a Petri dish and they called that Tokyo with oats, which is, a, which is food for the slime mold. They then dropped a tiny little bit of oat 
on literally like 150 different locations on the Petri dish that are all the same geographic location of the hubs of the subway system for Japan. They then inoculated the Tokyo area with the slime mold. And within a day or two, the slime mold had connected these other food sources in a more efficient way than the Japanese engineers who built the subway system. Wow. That's pretty wild. So there's some intelligence here that we don't necessarily appreciate. And, you know, if you talk to people who are kind of the real traditionalists in this space, you know, everything's interconnected. The, The mycelia of these fungi connect all the trees in the forest and, you know, a tree two miles away can transmit a warning sign or they can give a nutrient through this underground system to a tree that needs it. Like there's a symbiosis there that we really don't appreciate. And it's just amazing kind of how this stuff continues to kind of cycle through our history when we really need it, when we're kind of at the point that we need, as Chad said, this stuff enables a plasticity in the brain to get predominantly adults out of their kind of default mode network where they're looking and seeing things in the same way. Our brains are constantly taking data from the environment and interpreting it through a structure and a framework that we've built over the course of experience and kind of what these psychedelics can do is come in and wipe that away. And you can literally experience the world again, the way you did as a child. So now your creativity is fostered because you're not, everything's not built on the same scaffolding anymore. Now you can look at something in a different perspective. And so I think we're kind of in that crucible of, of civilization right now where we People are, are really struggling for a lot of lot of variety of reasons. And it seems like we're ramping up this ability to access kind of this, this wisdom, this knowledge, this science, you know, however you want to term it. Um, I do think it has a lot of promise. And again, I'll say this, it's, it's not a panacea. It's not a cure-all. It's not going to fix everything. But it, it certainly seems to have an ability to leverage in a way that we haven't been able to experience in the last 50 years. So, yeah, well, man, this is so fascinating. I could talk about it for another, another hour, but, uh, we're going to wrap up, but what, um, you know, I agree. I think we're at a place where people are, are desperate and they're open. And I think, Mm -hmm. you know, in, in recovery, you know, we get better when we, quit trying to do things that don't work. <laughs> right. and, we, and we get God, we get the, dip, the gift of desperation, right? I mean, that's, exactly. That yeah. The total, the, the total gift, which is kind of the beginning of the miracle. And mm-hmm. um, so, so how would people uh, just to give people a way to reach out to you to um, if they're interested in knowing more, learning more about what you guys uh, are talking about and doing, maybe to reach out to you personally. You don't certainly have to give a personal email or anything if you don't want to, but, uh, what would be a way people could get in touch with you and, and maybe learn a little bit more about how to access this? Yeah. I mean, we're, we have our own website, psychoceutical.com. Uh, we're also on uh, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter as well. So we're in multiple social media outlets. So people can engage with us on, on many fronts there. Uh, but certainly, um, you know, uh, we're, we're uh, and again, what I would say too is uh, one of our partners, uh, Zappy Zappelin, who's really one of the visionaries in in the psychedelic community. And I highly encourage uh, you know your audience to go back and look at a couple of movies, documentary filmmakers, um, movies that he has done, uh, both on uh, recently with Lamar Odom walking through his journey. And again, he went through ibogaine, he went through ketamine treatment, so. 
your viewers can go through that experience and get that firsthand, uh, you know, walking through that that documentary. Um, and then also his other movie with Michelle Rod- Rodriguez as well. So, um, but yeah, we're, we're, uh, we're all over social media and, and we'd love to engage with, uh, you know, any audience members that you have. That's great. Yeah. I would say for people who haven't, uh, either the series, the Netflix documentary series with Michael Paul and how to change your mind or the, the book's just fantastic. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Gosh, um, I mean, other than my personal email, I don't have any other way for people to reach me. <laughs> Which, <laughs> I hesitate to put that out there. I might get No, flooded. no, you don't I have don't. to do that at all, and we wouldn't expect <laughs> you to. Um, but, yeah, your, um, your information is out there, though, for people to access and really begin to do it. And, I, I mean, I, I love the Netflix uh, special. I'm about halfway uh, through it right now. But, um, but this, is a, this is a thing that I, I hope and believe we're going to see – some, some great benefit from, because like I said earlier, we have so many people that hurt and, um, and it's tough to sit in situations with folks who aren't getting better and know that maybe there's something else out there that could help. And we're, uh, you know, we're facing some, some obstacles. So, so guys, thank you for your time and thank you for your, uh, your work and your diligence and, uh, bringing all this forward. So, uh, we appreciate you being here and, um, and joining us today. But uh, listeners, uh, we will be back in just a moment on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Welcome back to the Positive Sobriety Podcast. And listeners, I hope you are still with us because that was longer than we used to <laughs> Uh, stay with us, but there was so much good information uh, and and energy being shared there, Nate. That I just didn't want to stop the ride. I- <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm glad you you know you didn't pull the ripcord on that thing and bail. You know, I tend to be a little bit anal about time, and I might have shut it down earlier than you did. I'm glad you didn't. I mean, when you were on a, a rocket ride like that, uh, I mean, it's just yeah. it, it would just be a crime to bail at that point. So yeah. Well, and you know, it's it's like somebody is sharing a cure and or at least another really hopeful modality for yeah. things that um, you know people suffer with that acutely that I see every day, and so mm-hmm. I just get excited that there's hope out there, and that's what I hope people hear in this is there's another uh, there's another modality that offers hope that's clinical that's administered in a clinical way by professional people in a setting that is uh, monitored. We're not talking about, you know, going down in the basement with red shag carpeting and a lava lamp here. We're talking about really (laughs) serious science, you know? (laughs) Yeah. 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 So uh, that's what I hope people take away. Yeah. Well, and I, I hope that um, on the one hand, I hope that our listeners were able to hang with us and listen with an open mind. I'm sure they are. Sure. Yeah. At the same time, I'm not going to rule out the possibility that, David, you and I kind of got carried away by our enthusiasm. We might have missed a red flag along the way that sure. our listeners picked up on. Sure. And if that's the case, I want to hear from you. Absolutely. We love to hear from listeners. Now, certainly, if you know, if you if you have nothing but uh, you know admiration and positive comments to make about uh, the episode, sure, we'd love to hear that stuff. <laughs> but yeah. if it, but if you're also concerned or alarmed, if you've got some pushback, if you've got some questions, we want to hear those too. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so either way, please drop us a line. We, I'm so eager to hear some feedback on this episode. Just drop us a line at positive sobriety podcast at yeah. gmail.com. All right. Well, David, uh, great work. Absolutely. Uh, I guess I'm going to get over the fact that I wasn't in. On well, you thank did a great you, thank job. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And uh, but I'm not going to miss upcoming episodes. Well, the next one's Lee. always fun, Nate. We'll have you. We'll have you at the next one. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, we got a good lineup yeah. heading into the fall. <laughs> we're going to have we're going to have plenty more, you know, stimulating, encouraging, challenging, and occasionally disturbing conversations with guests. Until uh, next time, then. I'm Nate. You're frozen. And I'm David. Okay, there you go. <laughs> and we are your pod. Uh, we're your podcasts? No, we're your pal <laughs> on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. The Positive Sobriety Podcast is recorded at Crossroads for the Nations in Brentwood, Tennessee. Live producer Rex Schnelli, music by Rex Schnelli, theme music by Matt Ulrich. Uh, hair and makeup by Lyle Lovett, uh, wardrobe <laughs> by Kathy Gifford. 